0: Hey there, it's Gary Perry's Sunday, March 31st, 2019. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Campbell fighting and Leaky Black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and the Final Four is set. The remaining teams are Michigan State, Texas Tech, Virginia, and Auburn. Texas Tech and Auburn are in the Final Four for the first time in school history. Chris Beard, Bruce Pearl, and Tony Bennett in the Final Four for the first time as coaches. This will be Tom Izzo's eighth Final Four, and man. The Elite Eight was incredible. Virginia's overtime win over Purdue was an all-timer. Auburn's OT win over Kentucky was loads of fun. What Texas Tech did to Gonzaga after doing something similar to Michigan was super impressive, and Michigan State-Duke was decided in the final seconds. Four games decided by six or fewer points, by a total of just 18 points. It's the lowest margin of victory for four Elite Eight games in NCAA tournament history. Two of the games went to OT. All four were one-possession games in the final minute. Now, Norlander, I want to talk about how each team got here momentarily but let's start with your thoughts on the now set 2019 final four it's one number one seed a number two seed a number three seed and a number five seed it's three conference champions one conference tournament champion it's auburn virginia virginia first national semifinal saturday 609 eastern texas tech michigan state and the second national semifinal saturday around 8:49 eastern do you love this like this or hate this
1: You'll never find me complain about a Final Four because I we are wired differently, Parrish, in this regard. I like diversity with my national semifinals. I like unexpected teams. I like matchups that change up things. Just as much as I like traditional programs and powers being there, uh, I can find something uh, interesting about every single final four every single year you know in light of what we saw here on Sunday uh, and the two powers the two blue bloods not making it on through Kentucky failing and Duke failing um, you know there is some early lamenting over the relative lack of sizzle in the final four I acknowledge that's undeniably the case but I think it's awesome that we have uh, an SEC team for the second time in three years breaking on through uh, in a surprising way it was South Carolina two years ago and now it's Auburn and uh, Michigan State is no surprise to me I'll get Tomorrow in just a second, but um, I did pick Michigan State to beat Duke on Selection Sunday, so uh, so there we go. Um, the field is enticing and interesting veteran laden there isn't a one one and done player that's in this final four that is not unprecedented we've had that a couple times since uh, the age minimum bumped from 18 to 19 uh, at the NBA level but that's something you're going to hear about you're also going to hear a lot about uh, because of that how old these teams are I think that's also uh, a storyline but I don't think that's exclusive to this year's you know college basketball season Duke could have Duke came really really close to winning and that storyline wouldn't be valid and wouldn't exist if Duke had broken on through but it didn't um but they're all really tough teams as well. Like these teams, I, I think the games have very good chances of being close because of uh, uh, d- dudes aren't afraid of, d- to just play physical and in, f- in very different reasons. Uh, all four of these teams, although they're tough and physical, I think that their, their makeup respectively is different. So I enjoy this Final Four. I enjoy it because n- almost no one, I mean, I think I saw CBS Sports tweet out that 04 no, 0.04% of all brackets had this Final Four uh, at CBS Sports, so uh, certainly some unexpected stuff. And by the way, you get two uh, coaches getting there for the first time. Uh, no, three, sorry. Bennett, Beard, Pearl, and Bruce. Uh, and then Tom Izzo, the other end of the scale. I think this is eighth, so I like it.
0: Um. My favorite part is you get three coaches there for the first time because
1: we talked about this on CBS Sports Network,
0: right or wrong, fairly or unfairly, and it might be unfair, uh, coaches get judged by whether they're or get labeled by whether they're a Final Four coach or they're not a Final Four coach. And when you never made it, uh, especially when you're otherwise super successful, that becomes a part of your resume. Like, oh, yeah, but he never went to a Final Four. And I don't think anybody's had to hear that more often lately than Tony Bennett. Like, this isn't really something people say about Chris Beard, and I don't think it was a weight around the neck of Bruce Pearl, but certainly with Tony Bennett, yeah, but never been to a Final Four was a part of his story, and now it's not. You know, he will forever be a Final Four coach. He'll never have – nobody will ever be able to say, yeah, but can you, can you play that style and get to a Final Four? Yeah, but can Tony Bennett ever actually break through? Um, it's a little bit like when Mark Few and Gonzaga got there for the first time. It's a little bit like when John Calipari won his first national championship. These big things people say about certain coaches. Yeah, but John's never won the big game. Well, then he won it, so you can't say that anymore. Maybe now the conversation is can't win it twice, but he did it once. Uh, now Tony has been to the Final Four. Chris Beard incredibly gets there as well. Bruce Pearl, after losing Chumo Kiki in the uh, Sweet 16, as a uh, underdog to a conference rival, he punches his ticket to get Auburn there for the first time in school history. So I love that, but undeniably, when you contrast this with the Final Four, we could have very reasonably had it is um, it as you put it, lacks sizzle, and I really do think is a television ratings killer. I mean, we've got Virginia, Michigan State, Texas Tech, and Auburn in the Final Four, and by the way, all these teams are good. Like, they were all top 13 at Ken Palm when this tournament started. Virginia, Michigan State, and Texas Tech all won regular season power conference titles. And um, Michigan State won its conference tournament title as well, and Auburn won the SEC tournament title. So every one of these teams is good. Um, it shouldn't be that surprising, but when you realize we could have had a Final Four of Duke, Gonzaga, either UNC or Kentucky, to go with Virginia. I mean, that's the difference between a Final Four that, like, sets ratings records and a Final Four that is, yes, still interesting, but not nearly as interesting as what we were very close to having. Um, Also worth noting, not many lottery picks in this thing. DeAndre Hunter, um, Jarrett Culver, but is there another lottery pick in the Final Four? So we're lacking the star power. We're lacking, um, you know, a Duke, a Carolina, a Kentucky, and it'll still be interesting, like you said. There's storylines that still exist. I think Texas Tech might be the best, or maybe Bruce Pearl, considering, you know, some people a year ago didn't even know if he's going to coach at Auburn this season. Obviously, Virginia being upset last year, punching through to to the Final Four this season, great stories, but not nearly the Final Four that. I'll just say I bet television executives would have preferred.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> Parish undeniable. But uh, I do think that we are going to have. All right, so we have three games left on the on the docket, not knowing who will get in the title game. Um, I think the, we'll have good elite eight carryover. Now Virginia is what a five to six point favorite, depending on uh, where you can get them in the aftermath of, uh, of this here on Sunday night. Uh, that they will be the bigger favorite uh, than Michigan State heading into, uh, into Saturday's national semifinals. But I think one of those two games is going to be uh, is going to be close. Both have a good chance of being close, um, but Michigan State Texas Tech on paper sets up as the closer one. So what I'm getting at here is even though uh, we are lacking. Um, what, what would have been also, by the way, a huge like media contention on the ground there. You lose the Japanese media, which is uh, just ridiculous with, with Rui Hachimura and Gonzaga. They won't be there. You have to figure... Um, Maybe 10 to 15% of folk in the media that would have gone because of Duke and Zion Williamson will now not be there. And then Kentucky has the largest beat in the country, so they're out as well. So a little less media clutter there as well from an on-the-ground perspective. But I still think we've got a good chance of having some competitive games in Minneapolis
0: um Ken Palm has it Michigan State 67 Texas uh, no I'm yeah Michigan State 67 Texas Tech 66 that's the projected score for that semifinal it's got it projected for Virginia 70 Auburn 64 that's that national semifinal so if the favorites win the game we will have a national championship game between Virginia and Michigan State, and that is one current Hall of Fame coach against a guy who is almost certainly going to be a Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame coach uh, as well. We've got plenty of time this week to get into um, those national semifinals, uh, so I want to spend most of this podcast looking back on what was an incredible Elite Eight, and we're going to do that momentarily, but first, check this out.
1: with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details.
0: So the game of the weekend, I think was the elite eight game in the South regional. It was Virginia Purdue. Uh, Carson Edwards makes three three-pointers in the game, finishes with 42 points. Purdue was up three in the final seconds. Ty Jerome at the free-throw line. Makes the first, misses the second, but not intentionally, he said. Uh, later said he just short-armed it. Mamadi Diakite slaps it into the backcourt. Kie Clark chases it down, and with three seconds left, if you pause it, He is holding the ball at the opposite three-point line. And what most people will do in that situation is dribble, dribble, shoot. Half-court heave, does not go in, your season is over, Purdue's in the Final Four. Instead, brilliantly, He recognizes that he's got time to get the ball to Diakite, so he throws what is basically a three-quarters court pass perfectly. Diakite uh, knocks down a shot at the buzzer, forces overtime, and then Virginia wins when Carson Edwards commits a turnover in the final seconds. Norlander, you were in the building for that one. Um, I was in a hotel room here in New York City for that one. I, I can't remember the last time I had that much fun watching a basketball game because it wasn't just a close game and an intense game and a high stakes game it was big time shot big time shot one after another after another the Carson Edwards performance was incredible the way Virginia was able to get it to the extra period insane you were in the building what was it like there
1: Parrish, I don't know where to start. Uh, the, what was it like there? It was an amazing environment. Uh, Purdue had about 88 to 90% of the fans in the building. Um, the shot-making was absurd. Carson Edwards had 42 No other Purdue player had more than seven, which is wild because, like, Ryan Klein, I think, hit the first basket of the game for Purdue and then he missed a free, like. There's so many elements to this game. He missed a free throw that kept the door open for Virginia, and then the the foul shot Jerome misses. It's a weird bounce. Diakite just barely gets it. It's a weird tap all the way to the back. Clark, recognizing. And by the way. Talked to Kyle Guy after for CBS Sports HQ uh guy said he you know in 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 the win he's in a terrific mood he's like i was i was he, you know i was frustrated i was angry in that moment cuz i was i was open right there and he didn't pass me the ball <laughs> gets it to diakite who so that was clark's only assist in the second half diakite's only made field goal of the second half um I, I when those moments happen and you're in the building it is indescribable um like, literally got goosebumps, just unreal. And and this, by the way, it, it comes after Carson Edwards out of his mind. Um, he averaged 34.8 points in the tournament, had the most prolific three-point shooting performance in NCAA tournament history. Uh, I think it's 28 GP. Let me check that real 20, quick.
0: 28 in four games.
1: Yep, there you go, 28. So no one had ever made 28 in a tournament alone. He did it in four games. Uh, just outrageous, and he, he kept Purdue in it. The swing, see why this was such an amazing game. And this is the second best game I've ever covered. I would still put Carolina Villanova one because it's a title game. You get the buzzer beater in that. It was close. You had the swing uh, with Marcus Page before that, but it's close because you know what? This one, there was, it was like from the tip. As soon as Klein hit that first three, uh, and I think Guy returned on one of the next two possessions to start the game. Like, even though Purdue got a ten-point lead at one point, and then Virginia cause, was kind of trying to massage that six to eight-point uh, lead in the second half, it just always felt like it was within three to five points constantly. If not, if if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't tied, and as all this is happening. You know, I'm kind of trying to keep an eye on, on Painter and Bennett, and just so cool. I mean, GP, I'm talking we are having these absurd three-pointers go down, like Jerome had one from from real deep. Kyle guys twists his ankle near the end of the first half. You think, oh boy, this isn't good. <laughs> no, not only does he return, he then finally starts being able to play like the guy he's been for most of his career, and snaps his, his NCAA tournament three-point struggles, which we mentioned on the previous podcast, and amid all of these, just trading these haymakers, Painter... Bennett they're just calm, like to calm the whole way. Um, although Bennett did say, and I didn't see this because uh, why would I have been looking at this moment, but when Carson hit the 10th, his 10th, 10th parish, per- he hit 10 three-pointers, the one that banked in, which was right in front of me, and I just, I had Mike DeCorsi to my left and then Dan O'Neill, and then Pat Forty, and I just like stared at them. I just gave him a hard stare. I was like, this is stupid. What's going on right now? Uh, Bennett said that he tore his play card in half because it was just it was it was unreal um it's the game of the tournament one of the best games in NCAA tournament history I, I don't know where it falls but if if I had the uh the time and means I, I have to believe it's it's like top six or seven I think and 40 was at the Kentucky Duke game in 92 that's still the best elite eight game ever and it is arguably the best NCAA tournament game ever that one's better because it has the buzzer beater it has uh, Leitner, one of the best college players ever. It has Duke versus Kentucky. That one still beats this one, but um, <laughs> if you really go back and watch that overtime, like it ended up as a five-point differential, but Carson Edwards got the ball with a chance to to win or tie the game with less than ten seconds to go, and then he gives he tries to dish it to Klein. That's you hate it when you get an epic game and it ends like that, but end like that it did. I mean I could go on for 40 minutes about this but uh and we'll get to my run in with the Bennett family in a second but um that's I guess that's my quick overview I just I I it I didn't think that the Purdue Tennessee game could be topped which, by the way, is like a top five game I've ever been to and covered. And this one easily topped it. Louisville was very kind to me, very kind to everyone that was able to see those games in person, because even though Virginia-Oregon wasn't that um, appealing, it was still close. Like, it was in doubt late. So good job on the Derby City for coming through with three huge games.
0: Uh, Virginia wins the game. I still think Carson Edwards was the story. I mean, mean, first off, that's... Two forty-two point games in the NCAA tournament. You know, as you pointed out, averaged thirty-four point eight points in the four games, and it got to a point in the second half where he was just, you know, he was just gonna he was gonna win the game or, or lose the game, but it, it was he was gonna be the one responsible for it, just pulling from anywhere, and like you know, he made 10 3 pointers, and it's amazing on that stage for a player to be able to knock down 10 3 pointers and score forty-two points against anybody. But to do it against Virginia, I mean, a team that's – and was, by the way, number one in opponents' uh, three-point field goal percentage heading into the game. They dropped to three after Carson (laughs) Edwards did that to them. Uh, So they're now at 28.7%. But still – Virginia only allows opponents to shoot 28.7% from the three-point line. They guard that line year in and year out, as well as, if not better than, anybody else in the country. And that's who Carson Edwards put 42 on. That's who Carson Edwards made 10 three-pointers on. And so, uh, just like I said, uh, I I love it when college basketball on big stages has games like that because it draws in people who otherwise wouldn't care. It, It felt like... On Saturday night, at least on Twitter, the only thing anybody was doing was watching Carson Edwards try to beat Virginia. And then it goes to overtime. Just an amazing game. And you're happy for Tony. Feel sick for Matt. I mean, my God, you're up three in the final six seconds. And then you're up yeah. two. And KiA Clark's got the ball, you know, 70 feet from you, the basket with three seconds to go. You, you're supposed to win that game. and. You know, we've gone through the play. Just amazing stuff all around. Fun game. Let's get to it. Why Tony Bennett push you like that? That was violent.
1: Uh, Well, I'm surprised you said that because you know what? When I watched, when I went back and watched the video, uh, which I did not know was, I didn't think it was. I thought that uh, TV was done, uh, but I guess they keep the cameras rolling for like the montage and stuff. So then I start getting texts from a few coaches being like, I think I just saw you on television get shoved by Tony Bennett. I was like, Oh gosh. So yes, when I watched the video, it doesn't actually look that bad, but Tony gave me like a real shove, like a happy shove. But he, it was me and another reporter. Don't know the the gentleman's name who was standing there. But, um, so the context of all this is game ends. Everyone's on the floor. Um, Tony Bennett gets it done. Um, and I, I, I knew that I was going to write about Tony Bennett making his first Final Four and his relationship with his father if they won, because I almost wrote the story three years ago, and then they blew it against Syracuse in Chicago, and uh, Dick Bennett has been documented uh, that, you know, he he has had, like, serious issues with going to games, to the point, like, he can't handle it, he's acted inappropriately with, uh, with other people, with strangers of opposing fans, um, and he's gotten better at it in the past year, although he's, yeah, I think... I want to say that the Oregon game and this game are the only two games he went to uh, this season. But um, for reasons you can read about in the the story column feature that I wrote overnight on um he made he made sure that he was going to be there. And so uh, when I saw Dick Bennett after the Oregon win, I went up to him and um, I said, he goes, no interview. I said, no, no, I don't need you right now. I was like, if, if, if Tony wins, though... Uh, let's just try and do something. He's like, you got it. So, um, so that's also playing in my mind as this game is going on. Because I'm, I'm thinking like, I'm thinking like, first I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna have to keep putting this off until because Tony is gonna make a Final Four eventually. It is going to happen. He is too good not to. But I'm fine with this. Carson Edwards is going off like he's just bonkers, and then Virginia starts coming back and. I'm keeping eyes on on Dick Bennett on the opposite end of the floor, and he was pretty good. Although he he had a couple of moments where he was like fired up, like going after the officials. Um, and then game ends, uh, and uh, I find him on the floor, and I give him a moment to kind of watch watch Tony t- speak on the podium, and we start talking. Uh, Jeff Borzello and a couple other writers get in real quick, and then everyone else kind of filters away. As I was, I, when Tony comes in, I was on my last question, and uh on my transcribed on my video on my audio tape uh uh dick's finishing answering the question and he goes and here he comes and i didn't know what he was saying like i didn't it didn't register and then i can hear tony bennett's voice but i don't see him because my back is to him and it's getting louder and what uh, he goes get out the dang way man and he shoves me and the other reporter embraces his father really cool kind of surreal Awesome moment. Um, that uh, a couple people are like, this better we'll wind up in one shining moment, which would be amazing. I don't think that is. I don't think that it will. But, uh, but yes, that is that is why that happened and um, wound up writing about Dick Bennett, Tony Bennett finally breaking through. Nineteen years apart, uh, they become the second father-son duo to make a Final Four. The John Thompson, John Thompson, the third connection was the uh, one to do it before this. And as many listeners are probably aware of, uh, Tony Bennett's only a coach. Not just because his dad was a coach and not just because he played for his dad, but it's because his dad asked him in the 1999-2000 season after Tony had played pro in New Zealand, played in the NBA, and his playing days were, were behind him, he said, listen, I don't know how much longer I'm going to coach why don't you just come be a part of the team this year, uh, specifically the, the, for that for that tournament run? He didn't have a staff opening available. Tony was not making any money. He did it for his dad. Uh, I met with uh, Tony's wife earlier in the day before the game. She gave me a photo of him at that tournament. I think it was the first weekend because um, it, it was a Mountain West site. They played at two Mountain West schools. But anyway, um, when that was all happening, uh, Laurel Bennett, his wife, told me that Tony was not into coaching at all. It wasn't going to happen, and it was only because – Wisconsin, as an 8-seed, made the Final Four that year. So think about how unlikely that is. She said when they got to Indianapolis, which was where the Final Four was that season, that's when Tony was like, okay... Like, it changed in a hurry. Like, no, I want to do this. Like, Final Four, this is amazing. Are you kidding me? Look look at how incredible this run has been. I want to be a coach. And so maybe he winds up being a coach no matter what, but maybe not, because he's been pretty transparent about that. If Wisconsin just does what it's supposed to do and loses as an eight seed well before the Final Four, who knows who's coaching Virginia? Who knows where Tony Bennett is right now? But uh, that connection with his dad, 19 years removed, they complete the circle uh, and both beat Purdue, by the way, as Wisconsin did in 2000 and now Virginia does. I thought that was just an awesome, awesome story.
0: I know you don't care and I found it hilarious, but that like was
1: like kind of inappropriate to just shove somebody that way. <laughs> Let him have their no, no. It was not. It was let him have their moment. First of all, no, no, no. How dare you? No, I actually I don't I don't even remotely care. Let him have the moment because he was also looking for his dad. And um, look, he saw his dad. That's why he was walking there. He just shoved you out of the way, like by, like pushed you hard. Blocker charge, GP. It
0: was a charge. It was a charge. I mean, like, I'm just saying you.
1: And I want to
0: be very clear. I am not making a big deal out of this. I'm not going to open a radio show tomorrow going. But did you see Tony Bennett shove that reporter? Like I thought it was the funniest thing I've saw on Saturday night on Twitter. Yeah. But like I'll say this, he do that. He does that to a different dude. Like it might not have been it, like a different dude didn't smile the way you smile. That was like there's a way to walk around somebody to hug your father. You don't have to like push somebody out of the way as if they don't belong there. It was just kind of a it was. It was hilarious, but also like kind of
1: weird. <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I didn't think about it like that at all. But uh, <laughs> I I do see I do see where you're coming from. Afterward, when I interviewed uh, Tony on HQ. Uh, he did apologize, and he also said they didn't catch that on TV, did they? I was like, no, they actually did. He's <laughs> like, oh man. So he did, like he had like a little bit of remorse. I don't. I thought it, I thought it was awesome. I, that that was one of the highlights of my tournament so far. Are you could mean That was a uh, that was a cool little deal there. But um, one more, r- real quick, before we wrap. You're, on now,
0: you're now forever the guy at the NCAA tournament who has a guster sticker and that got pushed by Tony Bennett. That's I'm, who you are. That's your
1: legacy. I want that is my brand and I'm I'm steering right into it. Unquestionably, I'm not I'm not dodging that even a little bit. Um the photos of Bennett on the on the ladder after he cut the net like and I and I say this like endearingly like He looks like a freaking madman, but that that he wanted this badly. He's got the scissors in one hand, the net in the other. He's got this like toothy roar about him. He was uh completely exalted. It was it was a really cool moment, and um, you know got to figure that you know deep down probably those players and that staff thought that it was done. I mean they really you stimulate out that ending GP a hundred times and really probably like. 97-98% 97-98% of the time feels like they're going to lose um, but it, it didn't happen that way they wind up getting the win. Tony Bennett moves on and now Matt Painter it, I think in, even in the loss Matt Painter will just be I think more well regarded in terms of where he stands in the overall um, you know, coaching landscape and would be on the short list of like best coaches to not have made a Final Four. I think that's one of the upshots of that defeat.
0: Um, t- the, the photos of Tony on that ladder are terrific and it looked like like we see coaches in that moment, I mean, every year, four of them, right, uh, to, to cut nets on their way to the Final Four. And they usually look happy, um, filled with joy. Tony obviously looked that way too, but that scream with yeah. his eyes closed and his hands in the air, it almost looked like a guy who recognized, um, I don't have to carry that around with me anymore. Yeah. And I know he's got good life balance and you know he he has you know he puts a lot of you know his faith really matters to him his family really matters to him. Not all coaches have have proper perspective on life. Uh, you know not all radio podcast hosts, television analysts uh, slash writers have proper perspective either. So I'm like not talking badly about coaches any more than I'm talking about people. But not all coaches have proper perspective, proper balance um by all accounts tony does so i don't know that he needed that to to you know to get through life but he did look like a guy who felt relieved you know that that he doesn't have to carry that around anymore i mean that's the way i interpret it at least
1: yep nope i think that's i think that's fairly accurate and uh and it's it's not done now i mean he breaks through the final four and and We'll obviously get to this on the next two podcasts, but Virginia is the favorite to win the national title. And the way that this Final Four broke, uh, it broke kindly for them. So um, another discussion for another time, but just an awesome, awesome scene in Louisville. It would be a miracle if we got a better game in Minneapolis than what we saw there on Saturday night.
0: And Cal Guy had a great quote afterward. He said, "Um, we're making history. We made bad history last year, and right now we're making great history. And if Virginia does go on and win two more uh, what an amazing story to go from the first one seed to ever lose to a 16 to a national champion, you know, inside of a year or roughly around a year from one year to the next um, would be pretty incredible. So Virginia advances uh, to the final four and the Cavaliers are going to play Auburn. And that's because Auburn beat Kentucky 77-71 on Sunday afternoon. Kentucky led by 11 in the first half but auburn battled back tied it in the final seconds of regulation <laughs> and then horace spencer <laughs> decides to launch a three-pointer at the buzzer and this isn't like even like a rush like hey he just happened to be the guy with the ball so he's got to throw it at the rim like dozier for the championship that was just like dozier for the championship although you do wonder if memphis would have had kihei clark to make a better decision than robert dozier perhaps that game goes uh, differently uh, horace spencer just had the ball And he had a teammate to his left, wide open, and yet, even though he only took three three three-pointers, attempted three in his first three years of college, and was 3-of-17 this season from beyond the arc, which means he's 3-of-20 in four years of college basketball from beyond the arc, he still just launched it, right? And uh, he was trying to be an all-time NCAA tournament hero, unsurprisingly, Uh, that ball did not go in uh, but uh, we went so we went to overtime and then Auburn uh, ends up winning it I think Jared Harper and uh, Bryce Brown combined for 50 points Um, and and Auburn wins despite shooting just 30.4 percent from three-point range I think they only had seven makes which surprised me if you like I did talk about this before the game we did a uh, two-hour show on CBS Sports Network, and I said, the scary thing about Auburn, and it's nothing, you know, unique to me, I think this is pretty obvious, the scary thing about Auburn is about 50% of their goal attempts are going to come from beyond the arc, and if they get hot like they did against North Carolina, then I don't care if Chumo Kiki's playing or not, uh, they can beat you. Uh, but I thought they'd have to take 30 and make 12 or 13, 14. I- instead, they, they shot 30.4%, only made seven, and they still beat Kentucky, uh, which means uh, that is... I want to be exactly right on it. I think it's four straight years, maybe five, that uh, Kentucky now has not been in the final four. Now, Kentucky... Four, uh,
1: because they made it in 15.
0: Okay, so they make it in 15. So 16, 17, 18, 19, four straight years Kentucky has not been to the final four. And I don't want to turn this into um, a conversation about whether John Carroll Perry's maximizing his potential. Like, John has been to uh, four final fours in 10 years at kentucky i believe that's two more twice as many as anybody else in the same span like i'm sorry he didn't have more national championships i'm sorry that he blew a double digit lead in this one but the guy's still doing an amazing job all things considered and so i think that conversation is just kind of a stupid conversation but they were favorites against the shorthanded auburn team today a team they'd already beaten twice in the regular season and they could not get the job done so just your thoughts on what we watch between auburn and kentucky
1: I think – so I tweeted this. Out. So I would rank the the Elite Eight games as uh, Purdue and Virginia as one, Duke-Michigan State two, I think in Texas Tech three, and then Auburn-Kentucky four. And the fact that that's four is absurd. Um, fourth only because – like, Kentucky, it it, it lacks some shot-making it needed. It did, hey, listen, the game got to overtime, but Auburn wasn't great from three. It was It was entertaining, but I think it was the least well-played game of the four, and that's why I rank it as fourth. And that being said, it was still awesome. Like, it was a great game. Auburn moves on. I was also, by the way, it was a game where I did not think Kentucky was going to lose until what, maybe a minute to go in overtime. I just thought, like, is Auburn really going to do this? Like, Can I picture Auburn winning this game and making the Final Four under Bruce Pearl after people thought he would not even have his job a year ago? After Auburn, which has been treated kindly, actually kind of like Purdue, uh, by Ken Palm most of the season, but did not beat um, a Tier A high-level Ken Palm team until earlier this month. And yet they've been on this crazy tear. I mean, this is, this is they're a better team than this. But this is like VCU when it went to the Final Four in terms of like once it got into postseason play, what it did was not representative of what it had done most of the earlier in the season. Um, and like that VCU team, this Auburn team is guard oriented, uh, hot from three. Sunday's result um, not included, and they get they do it without Chuma Okiki. I can't believe it. I mean, I guess I can, but I didn't give him almost much of a chance because they didn't have him. Kentucky was built to beat Auburn in this game, and it didn't. Um all I can say about the game is I am happy that it was it was tight, it was close. Cal gets him to another lead eight. Great on Auburn. Uh it, it certainly adds something interesting for uh for the Final Four in that, you know, Barkley's an analyst and he went there, so who knows what who knows what kind of uh <laughs> Fun, fun-loving lunacy that might bring there. Uh, f- first four, Final Four in program history. Bruce Pearl had some t- Tennessee teams that were better than this one that did not make the Final Four. Um, and then my last thing, GP, and I agree, we don't have to get in it. Like, I'm, not in, I'm not banging on Cal. Not going to happen. He's done great. Um, I saw Jason Lisk tweet out uh, this, this on Twitter. Um, he said, Kentucky has averaged 3.44 wins in the NCAA tournament uh, when Cal's been the coach. And in that same span, all number one seeds have averaged 2.97. Number one seeds. So if you're if you if you're going to try and make the argument that uh, John Calipari is underachieving. Um, I just don't think it holds much water. I mean, the final four appearances, getting to the Elite Eight period, uh, it, it, the high seeds year over year. Uh, we've talked about this plenty um, on podcasts before over the years, and uh, I, I understand losing to Auburn uh, and playing the way that 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 it did today was, was frustrating, and Higgins wasn't good at all. Hero, uh, you know, in the big picture, was a was a good player, but uh, fell short in some regards. You wanted him to be a better shooter than he wound up being. I get that. Um, but Kentucky also had, obviously, injury issues and uh, all told, Cal did a fine job. He's going to have an awesome team again next year, and maybe the bracket will break right for them or the game, they'll have the ball bounce the right way for him there. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you're not going to hear me say anything bad about what Cal's done. The, Kentucky is doing just fine.
0: So Auburn was a preseason top 15 team, returning a lot of key pieces from a team that won a regular season SEC title last season. And you referenced this. Uh, their resume was really lacking for much of this season. On February 4th, or the morning of February 5th, they had exactly one win over a top 50 Kenpom team. And that was over okay. Washington. Oh, Washington. Okay. Which finished which finished 48th um at Kenpom and that was a home game. So they had done nothing uh, notable on the road, nothing notable on a neutral court, and really not that much notable in general. Um they were 2 and 4 to start in the SEC. They ended up 7 and 7 at one point in the SEC, but since February 4th. So they go basically the first three months of the season, um, beating – not getting any really good wins. Again, one top 50 Kempom win. Since then, they've got eight more. Eight. They uh, have gotten wins over Florida, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Florida again, Tennessee again, Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky, and let's stop there for a second. How many teams, How many schools have beaten Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky consecutive NCAA tournament games? I mean, that's blue blood with a Hall of Fame coach, blue blood with a Hall of Fame coach, blue blood with a Hall of Fame coach.
1: Arizona 97 is the only other one to do it.
0: Trivia time. <laughs> Trivia time,
1: yeah You asked, I'm giving it to you. Uh, consecutive games, that didn't happen consecutively, but you know, just three blue bloods in the tournament, and Arizona did it, and they, by the way, wound up winning the national title as a four seed that year, if memory serves correct.
0: So now Auburn is on a 12-game winning streak and heading into a game against Virginia, and we got time the rest of this week to break these things down, but I will say uh, where Auburn wants to try to beat you from is the three-point line, and again, i um, Really, only Carson Edwards ever does good stuff.
1: Carson Edwards going to be suiting up for Bruce Pearl there. GP, I don't know. It'd
0: be it'd be advantageous. I bet you Bruce wouldn't. uh, I bet you Bruce wouldn't turn it down. And so happy for Bruce to get his uh, first trip to the Final Four. I know he's a controversial slash divisive figure, but um, I've always liked the guy, and I I think he's a a, you know uh, what he did at Tennessee was remarkable. What he's doing at Auburn you know, he took Tennessee to its first ever Elite Eight. Now he's taken Auburn to its first ever uh, Final Four. So uh, good for him. And uh, it was an all-SEC battle in the Midwest Regional Final. Auburn wins it. Again, they'll play Virginia in the Final Four. Now let's go to the West Regional because that's where Texas Tech on Saturday beat Gonzaga 75-69. Gonzaga, Shot 53.2% from the field on the season, 36.5% from three. Against Texas Tech, 42.4% from the field, just 26.9% from three. They only scored 69 points. It was only the fourth time the Zags were held to less than 70 this entire season. And now Chris Beard, he's got Texas Tech to its first Final Four in just his third year. And it's crazy because the guy inherited a, a, a good situation from Texas. From, tubby smith all things considered but then in year two goes to the elite eight with a you know a couple of guards who were freshmen sub 100 high school prospects um i mean like you're not supposed to win in a league like the big 12 with freshmen sub 100 guards and yet chris beard was able to do it last season he had uh jared culver of course and then the other one was Air smith Zaire Smith ends up being a one-and-done top 16 pick after being a sub-100 prospect. I believe that made him, because I remember referencing this at the time, the first ever one-and-done, no-red-shirt sub-100 player, sub-100 high school prospect, like it had never happened. And now his teammate, who was also a sub-100 player, who I saw somebody tweet this weekend, like Texas didn't even ever go see. Like, Shaka yeah. Smart never went to recruit Jared Culver at all. Jared Culver now going to be a top 10 pick, definitely a lottery pick, perhaps a top five pick after two years under Chris Beard. And he was also a sub 100 prospect. So, like, I don't think Chris Beard just got lucky twice. I think he has developed those two players into stars. He has developed this team into a great team. They sit here now 30 and 6, Big 12 regular season champs. First Final Four in school history, despite losing five of the top seven off last season's team. And it ain't like he replaced losing five of the top seven scores off last season's team with Zion Williamson and R.J. Baird and Cam Reddish and Trey Jones. It ain't like he had a McDonald's All-American in the group. He's just done a hell of a job developing first uh, and uh, identifying players that will work for him, um, developing them into something better. You hear this all the time. That team's better than, the, uh, than its individual parts. And I don't think there's a better example in college basketball, perhaps over several years, than better than the individual pieces than this Texas Tech team is.
1: Yep. And you mentioned that. It also means that Texas Tech is the only team that broke through to the Final Four that was facing that kind of roster turnover, but there were a lot of them in the Elite Eight. I wrote about it with Purdue, which lost four starters and came close, but didn't break through. And then obviously Duke and Kentucky, given the way that they operate and with their recruiting and flipping and one, and one of them players, also lost that many starters uh, and impact players. They also only uh, made the Elite Eight. Texas Tech breaks on through, gets to the first Final Four in program history, Um it's it's very impressive. Um, it ends a Gonzaga run that, so now, like, you know, the 2016-2017 the Gonzaga team, we can say for sure, that's still the best team in program history. I think this one is, is the second best. Um, and I wonder if uh, the fact that Gonzaga didn't make a Final Four with this team, if it might be go on to be a bit underrated in years down the road. Um, That was a really good game, Uh, a a tough game, a game that ended like Carson Edwards trying to get the ball to Ryan Klein ends in a little bit of a whimper. Uh, Josh Perkins inadvertently, um, I can't remember who was passing the ball, and I was watching in the media room at the Yum Center with, you know, like 100 people. I can't remember who was trying to pass the ball in there. Was it Moretti? Uh, anyway, he he he. It's a technical foul, and that ta- you know that takes a little bit of the air out of that ending. Uh, Texas Tech just hit some big threes uh, and played the game that it wanted to play. By the way, um, given how good the other three games were, Paris. By the way, it just It feels like that game was a lot longer ago than uh, than even the the Purdue Virginia game, but. Um, I just wanted to take a quick second here to say Gonzaga had a really, really good season, came very close to the Final Four and only didn't get there because it bumped into an incredible coach the number one defense in America, so that was obviously number one D versus number one offense. Defense won out in that case, which isn't always the case, but it was there, and, um, you know, no shame on that Gonzaga team, which I expect, even though it's going to lose guys, um, I expect it to be pretty pretty good again. Just It's going to be a recruit and reload for for Mark Few and the Zags. It would have been fun to get them back, but they don't break on through, and that was the first indication that we would not have uh, – I guess it was technically the second indication because Carolina lost before that um, in terms of ones breaking on through. But uh, yeah, you hit on so much of what I was going to say with Texas Tech. I don't have too much to add. Um, I, I think they have a real chance to win the national title. I think if people like follow follow college basketball love college basketball, they're giving Texas Tech a shot. But for those that you know swoop in to watch the tournament and aren't used to it, the same way like if you don't watch a lot of college football, but you kind of pay attention once we get to like the Thanksgiving games or just hop in with the college football playoff, and in a random year, let's just say like the equivalent would be like. I mean, historically, honestly, like the equivalent might be something like, I don't know, Oregon State football making the college football playoff, something like that. Like, instinctively, you wouldn't give that kind of team much of a chance in your head to win the national championship. And if you find yourself kind of there right now because they're playing, you know, a Hall of Famer, a program that's been to so many Final Fours, and you think, well, they're good, but Michigan State's tough, I don't. Don't sell them short. Texas Tech has been eating people's lunch, taking their money off this for two years with that kind of mentality. They can absolutely win two more games. And what they were able to do, Gonzaga, was one of the most impressive performances we've seen in the tournament.
0: No, listen, I'm not going to pick Texas Tech to win the national championship. Um, they actually don't fit what is normally, um, you know, the description of a, of a national champion. In other words, they, they're not top 11 in both offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. As I pointed out many times on this podcast, six of the past seven NCAA tournament champions are top 11 in both. The only exception is that fluky Kevin Ollie Shabazz Napier, UConn team. Uh, they're number one in defensive efficiency. And my God, all you need is eyeballs to know that that was probably true with what they did to uh, Michigan and Gonzaga in consecutive games. But they're 30th in offensive efficiency. And you'd usually, not always, but usually have to be better than that. To, to, to actually cut the nets on that final Monday night of the season. That said, they just beat the number six team at Kpa by 19 points and the number two team at Kenpom by six points and looked great while doing it. And so why they do not check the boxes for a national, for a typical national champion in terms of individual talent or offensive efficiency, I would submit that if you've just beaten the number six team at Ken Palm and the number two team at Ken Palm, um, there's nothing crazy about you winning two more games.
1: I, GP, say no more. I, I agree, and I give them a, a real shot um, the, just with the way that they're built. I, that that We will preview this more on the upcoming podcast, but I just think that that Michigan State game is a fascinating matchup, but we'll get into that down the road.
0: So Texas Tech advances, and it will play Michigan State in a national semifinal, and that's because the East Regional Final uh, was settled uh, on Sunday night. Michigan State 68, Duke 67. Zion Williamson got 24 points, 14 rebounds, three blocks in what was the final game of his college career. Duke shot 33.3% from three-point range. It was a problem all season. It was a problem in the Elite Eight. R.J. Barrett missed a potential game-tying free throw in the final seconds. Well, I don't guess he did technically do that they were down two he was at the line less than six seconds to play he missed the first one then tried to miss the second one but ended up making it so I guess he never had a game time free throw but either way he had two free throws if he'd have made both they could have tied the game Uh, he missed the first made the second and then you know we've seen it a million times in basketball games Michigan State's going to inbound Duke's going to foul Michigan State's going to go to the other end and Duke's going to try to get one more shot at it this one didn't really go that way Michigan State inbounds the ball to Cassius Winston he gets free and is able to basically dribble out the clock, and so Michigan State wins at sixty-eight, sixty-seven, and a couple of interesting notes I saw. Um, one from Zach Brazilla from the New York Post, who said, who tweeted that Zion Williamson took only one shot over the final six forty-two of what? that game, and then this from Roger Sherman. He says uh, he tweeted Duke lost three games with Zion Williamson in the lineup this year. R.J. Barrett went 0-9 in the final minute of those three games. The rest of the team had three total shots. Zion had one.
1: That we, is interesting. Parrish, wavelength, you and me, cruising side-by-side, side, holding hands. That's right, because I had that same exact tweet brought up. Shouts to Roger Sherman, who, by the way, pulled the at Roger handle on Twitter. Nice find there, Roger. Um, that's an incredible stat. Because it goes back to the Gonzaga loss at Maui, right, where um, just a little bit was made of R.J. Barrett kind of getting some tunnel vision, trying to get some hero ball in. Zion Williamson had played well in that game. And when you just – through the context of just that, the only three times that Zion Williamson was on the floor for a Duke loss had one total shot in those three games, and Barrett never made a field goal. Um, There's more that we can get into here. But uh, let me just volley this back to you real quick. I mean, do you find that to be an indictment on R.J. Barrett? Do you find it to be an indictment on Mike Krzyzewski and his end-of-game approach? What is your overall takeaway on it?
0: I think it's some of both, right? Well, R.J.'s just wired to, you know, to try to end games um, in those moments. You, you know, he, uh, we saw it for the first time in Maui when they lost for the first time. Um, it was, that's when R.J. first got the label of being selfish Whether that's fair or not, I'll let others decide. But certainly that started to become a thing, selfish R.J. Barrett. And it is also uh, the time where when Duke left Maui, but before it started um, playing games again. um, So the next game they played after losing to Gonzaga was an Indiana game. And they beat Indiana ninety sixty nine. 90-69. Then rest of the season, everybody just beat Indiana. Just every game, just beat. let's go beat Indiana. Uh, but Mike Krzyzewski acknowledged, after one of those games, whether it was the Indiana game or the Stetson game or the Hartford game, but I think it was the Indiana game, he said we spent some time putting in stuff specifically to ensure that Zion gets touches because he can't not touch the ball the way he didn't touch the ball. And yet it was a common denominator in um, – you know, in the losses with Zion in the lineup, and it was costly uh, on Sunday in the early day. Like when you've got somebody who is otherworldly, and he really is otherworldly. I mean, my God, even in defeat on Sunday, just some of these plays he was making, and the way he was big boying people at the rim, and blocking shots on the other end. I mean, he is something special. And I know I'm not saying anything that everybody doesn't realize, but when when you know he's that special and yet he still amazes you? Yeah. Basically every game. I mean, I can't I can't speak more highly of him. Um and you got to be able to get that guy touches down the stretch more than he got down the stretch again. Um th- th- you this this thing just can't be true. He took one shot over the final 642. And I know Michigan State started running double teams at him like I got it. But you got to figure out a, I mean, you're a Hall of Fame coach and you've got a probable future hall of fame player you got to figure out a way to get him more than one shot over the final 642
1: right you do i mean the final game of zion williamson's college career featured a lot of the stuff that we had come to uh insanely but pragmatically expect the the block on the three-pointer i think that was goings top of the key crazy the recovery block where he had to duck under the backboard as he's falling back down to earth, uh, proving once more that he is actually human, even though he has given evidence otherwise in so many games he's played this season was awesome. He had uh, just an awesome up-and-under move. I mean, there was at least seven or eight moments in this game where it was, again, it was just like, all right, what he's doing is just, we just have not seen a player like this. And the fact that he didn't get those opportunities was surprising. Um because he's just he's just efficient like so much of his efficiency is his dominance and his instinct and touch which I think is important to note around the rim he didn't get those opportunities the game itself had seven ties 16 lead changes credit to Michigan State well coached, Cassius Winston is a stud when you watch him play um he he doesn't have the prettiest looking shot. He almost has a, a lurch to him, like he's you know he almost looks like he's bent over more than he should be when he's dribb- when he's dribbling the ball. But he's a willing distributor. He's a smart shooter. He has a great instinct about him. He has nice touch. He gets by and around other athletes. He is the biggest reason Michigan State won. Now Michigan State had enough physicality on the front line, which I didn't hear a lot of people making a lot out of heading into that game, but I had Michigan State over Duke, and the reason why I thought was not just Duke and the foul line stuff failing them, which happened, the three-pointers failing them, which was inevitable. This was always, to me, this was always going to happen to Duke. I know that those seem obvious, but that was part of the equation. And then I just thought that uh, Tillman, who has come along and and played strong uh, and been a much-improved player over the past few months, Nick Ward, who was good but also missed some bunnies. Like, you had Michigan State miss miss a few bunnies in that game. Um, They just seem to have... Quite enough. I mean, a close shave win, but Duke flirted with fire. It never played a complete game. Like Virginia hasn't played a complete game yet either, and it's made the Final Four. But it played really well to get past Purdue. Like it, it played to uh, a standard that it would be happy with. Duke did not play to a standard it would be happy with in any of its end games. I include the the one where it eventually pulled away from North Coast State because it, it trailed in the first half, of, late in the first half of that one, and then it just barely escapes UCF, and then it gets it just barely escapes out of Virginia Tech. That was a, that was a close one as well, and then here it goes up against a real opponent, a team that some people thought deserved to be on the one line, um, and Michigan State gets it done. So, uh, fantastic game. I just. I love the fact that you get that Sunday Elite Eight game, the final one. See, the reason why this Elite Eight was so awesome and the reason why I, I, I kind of cherish these Elite Eights is they're the last games in the natural environment. You get them in the arenas. You know, the Final Four is awesome, but it is a, it is a different stage. It's the biggest stage. You're in a football stadium. These You just hope that the basketball games in the basketball arenas, you can get one or two good ones. We got four awesome ones. I, similar to how I thought Kentucky was going to get by Auburn, I wasn't as convinced Duke was going to win uh, in the moment, even though I picked Michigan State. But as I as they kind of just kept creeping around, you know, a shot Michigan State should have gone should have made, didn't go in. Uh, Duke was still just hovering, and uh, I was expecting Zion Williamson to get that touch, never happened there, which was a bit surprising. So credit to Tom Izzo, his eighth Final Four. Mike Krzyzewski has now been denied in the Elite Eight. Uh, in back-to-back years, last year lost an OT to Kansas. This one loses by one point, and so he is still tied with John Wooden at 12 for the most Final Four appearances ever. I do expect him to finally break through there, but uh, but he has had uh, a lot of really good talent the past two years, hasn't been able to break through, and uh, and yet Michigan State, which has had injuries, gets over the top. Credit to Izzo, credit to Sparty. Uh, they have also had quite the, uh, quite the turnaround in a year's time.
0: And nothing to be embarrassed about if you're Duke. I mean, listen, you went to the Elite Eight and you were in a final possession game against a, you know, a Big Ten tournament champion and a Big Ten regular season champion. Uh, Duke was more talented, but Duke was always more talented than everybody this year. But Duke was not unbeatable or perfect. Um, they did have a flaw, and I, I don't know if that three-point shooting cost them the game, but they did not shoot the ball well from three, and that is uh, something that was um, a factor in... In all of their full, you know, all of their Zion Williamson, uh, let's just say their their full strength losses. They didn't shoot the ball. Most of their losses, they didn't shoot the ball well from three. Um, I will say this though, Mike Shoskeski has down made two Final Fours in the past fifteen years. Did you realize that?
1: Uh, I did realize that. The two now, the reason why that's a surprising stat on its surface is because it's less than you think, but it's also. Uh, I don't know. Shaded by the fact that he won the title both those years that they made. Right.
0: It. When he gets there, he wins the title. At least he has the past two times. But he's got two Final Fours in the past 15 years. For some context, Villanova's got two in the past three. UNC's got two in the past four. Kentucky's got four in the past ten. And Duke's got two in the past 15. And I don't know if that means you need to reevaluate your um, roster. Um, Uh, the way you assemble a roster like I wonder if and Kentucky didn't get there either so whatever but I really thought it was smart that Kentucky was able to go get a grad transfer or two and obviously read Travis is a different level grad transfer than you're usually going to be able to get but you know Gonzaga was awesome this year with a sit-out transfer um Kentucky had a grad transfer. If you're going to recruit one and done players as often as Duke is going to recruit them, I think complementing them with grad transfers might not be the worst thing in the world.
1: I, I yeah, I probably, I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm thinking that kind of through. I think that's not not a terrible uh, idea. If you look in the big picture, though, right, Paris. Tony Bennett gets uh, wrongly chided up until this year because the system he runs, like it's just not good for March. But I always say, you know what, if you look at the true sample size, not just sample size, but the quality of teams that Virginia's playing year over year over year, um, no. It is showing you that it can work and it does work. And the Final Four, I think, will probably shut people up. But if Virginia doesn't win a national title, stupid small contingent's going to exist there. Similarly, if you look at what Kentucky and Duke have done with uh, the approaches that they've had, um, I, I maintain that this is working for them. Uh Duke won a national title under this kind of philosophy as did Kentucky recently. So I don't, you know, getting grad transfers in, I, if you can get a blend of both, yes, but I don't think this is a situation where uh for as long as we're going to have at least for another 2-3 years um the one and done model on the NBA's behalf still in place, I still think that we're going to get that. And that's that's fine by me, by the way. My last thing on this is Paris. I tweeted this out like Zion Williamson is the kind of player we never saw before and almost certainly will never see again in college basketball. Um, now, there's there's weird hate for Zion because he has been this media magnet. If, if you've got an issue with that, you're a lost cause. I don't know what to tell you. Like If you cannot appreciate the kind of athlete and player he was, and by the way, he's a super terrific kid. I know that there was stuff attached to the FBI case with Kansas and all those allegations. I don't push those aside. I'm talking about who he was and how he was on the court. Just you could not help but watch this dude. He made Duke as watchable as it's ever been. I don't think he's made him as likable because, in fact, I actually think I've seen more Duke hate in the past month than even I anticipated, but uh, he's done. So we don't have him at the Final Four. A little bit of a bummer, but whatever. We had a whole season's worth of him, and... Instead of, like, riding this, like, oh, I can't wait for college basketball to get back to what it should be without Zion Williamson and all that, no. Like, it, it should be this. It, it should be having these awesome stars that we can revel at. And if they get knocked out of the tournament, that's the nature of the beast. That's what makes the NCAA tournament unpredictable and amazing. I love it because of that. But, uh, but that's just a quick rant on, on Zion overall. So I don't know how to segue back to you, but I wanted to squeeze that in before we wrap up here.
0: No, I'm, I'm with you on – because every time this happens, people say, well, see, you can't win with one-and-dones. Well, yes, you can. It's just that, it, just that some teams heavily reliant on one-and-done players have fallen short of a national championship or a Final Four. It doesn't mean you, quote, can't win with one-and-dones. Here's the truth. Um, the goal every year should be to assemble a roster that gives you an opportunity to win a national championship. That when you head into March, you have had the type of season that has given you the type of seed that has created the type of computer numbers that suggest you can win a national championship. And that was true for Kentucky this year, and it was also true for Duke this year. And then guess what? We're in a single elimination tournament of 40-minute games. And the only thing that kept Kentucky out of the Final Four with its freshman-reliant roster is an overtime game against a team that's currently eleventh that can bomb. And the only thing that kept Duke out of the final four with it's heavily reliant on freshman team is a point, a miss free throw. Um one stop or one make. And to draw big conclusions about what can or can't be done based on the results of games that could have even Bruce Pearl and Tom Izzo would tell you could have gone the other way very easily, just like I'm sure Tony Bennett would tell you his game against Purdue could go either way very easily, just as like I'm sure Chris Beard would tell you his game with Gonzaga could have gone either way very easily. To draw big conclusions off of the results of games that were, you know, one shot here or there from being totally different results, to me seems a little foolish, and so I'll, I'll try not to do it. You want to make final four picks now or save them for later podcast?
1: You know what? Let's save them. Let's save them. Picks straight up and against the spread. You know what? Let's save them. How's your – let's remind real quickly the listeners. I don't
0: talk about it anymore.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I got two of my final four in there, so I just wanted to see how you were doing.
0: I don't, I don't care anymore. It doesn't matter.
1: Oh, okay. It doesn't matter. Okay. Because I believe you had Duke. Um, I think you had Tennessee. Yeah. UNC. Yep. Uh, Gonzaga, right?
0: Yep, yep. It was all good just a week ago. I had 14 of the 16 Sweet 16 teams, and then everybody just blew up on me. Why do they do that? Why can't you trust these stupid teams?
1: Ah, that's the beauty of this, and I will, I'll end on this. Uh, after the literally, statistically, the chalkiest weekend ever, everyone's bracket's looking good, and you can see how many people relying on Duke. And UNC, to a, a, a heavy degree as well, those get booted out. And, and Gonzaga, obviously, a heavy favorite is one there. It could just, uh, yeah, that that's the tournament for you.
0: Yeah, let's get out of here because uh, Bomani Jones tweeted earlier today after Auburn made the final four for the first time in school history. He tweeted, uh, attention, New York City. Um, I don't know where Charles Barkley is going to be tonight, but the place to be is wherever Charles Barkley is going to be tonight.
1: you got go to go find him. I
0: know where Charles Barkley is going to be tonight, and I am about to uh, finish this podcast and go to that place. Go
1: find him. And have a hell of a time. Yes. Love it.
0: So, shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Tigo, He's a legend. Shouts to the homie Now, And if you haven't subscribed to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast yet, please go do that because we are, as far as I know, the only people giving you three college basketball podcasts per week. The next one uh, will come, we got to figure that out, either Tuesday night or Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday night. And so, the best way for you to know the answer to that question when is the next Ion College Basketball Podcast going to come out? Is to subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast because then that thing is going to be right in your phone right after Matt Norlander uh, uploads it. So go subscribe. And while you're there, if you got a second, um, rate it favorably. Five stars and nice comments. And we will talk to you again uh, very, very soon. That's when we'll start breaking down the Final Four matchups. Till then, take care.